It's really good to see uh, uh, all that are visiting with us tonight. We have several that are visiting, even from the community, and we're very grateful, grateful for that. We hope that you'll uh, make a plans, if you can, to even join us at other times as we worship together. Uh, and, uh, and our design now is for you to open your Bibles with us, uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, or uh, that uh, maybe you could uh, access and, and study together with us. We're going to begin uh, in uh, 1 Peter chapter uh, 1 and verse 23. The Apostle says, For we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word that was preached to you. I just asked you if you wanted to take out a Bible. Uh, Did you bring one with you today? Uh, and I think that's uh, probably something when we think about uh, our Bibles uh, that we recognize that the books that we uh, take with us to worship God, to study God's Word, the things that the, the Bible that we read together uh, is an important element uh, of the hope that we have in our relationship of salvation towards God. At least I hope that's so, and that's what I want to take a couple minutes and talk about uh, even this evening. Uh, is whether or not we have the proper respect for the Word of God and the proper perspective on the Word of God that we ought to have, uh, the words that are contained in Scripture. You know, I have a, I have a library in the back, and I sort of had another one at the house, uh, and uh, on the walls are books. That's what preachers are supposed to collect, is books. And I have several over the years that I've collected. In between the covers of those books are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of words. If I were to bring any one of those books out here and read to you, Out of the pages of those books, I would simply be reading to you the words of men. But if I bring this book out here, as we have done on occasion, I read out of this book, something is transcendently different about what is said here. Not the words themselves. All of my books are in the same language and carry many times the same words. Yet what's different about the words that are contained in the books of men and the words that are found in the Bible are that these words have a very distinct source. These are the words of God. Uh, and that itself ought to give us pause to consider the importance of the, uh, of the Bibles that we bring with us, that we read out of, and that we consider. In our view of contentment this morning, we defined contentment, looking Philippians chapter 4, as the willingness to be satisfied with what God has provided. And what we talked about this morning is that there are a lot of applications to that. The changing physical circumstances of life. We are to be content with whether we have a lot or whether we don't have a lot of physical blessings, whether this happens or that happens, and that challenges us. I suspect that when we think about uh, what's coming up this Tuesday and what's going to happen in this country and choices are going to be made, there's some folks that are going to be content and some folks that are going to be discontent. So all of those changing circumstances of life challenge us about contentment. And there are some applications, as we talked about uh, in our physical lives, even uh, as we talked about this morning. But what I want to consider is it that very same idea from a different perspective, and that is, are you satisfied with what God provides in the words of God? If we believe that God has truly spoken to us, and I think in a, a poll of individuals, still the majority of religious individuals would, would define the Bible as the word of God. If God has spoken to us, then are we satisfied with what he's spoken? Because that certainly is what he's provided for us. Are we content? with what the scriptures say. Is the Bible enough? Are the scriptures enough? Not only from the standpoint of what they actually say, but 
And we're going to talk about tonight and how we use them and utilize the Bible. Is the Bible enough for us to do the work of God? In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter identifies the words of God as the foundational source of what it means to be born again. He writes to those who are Christians, those who are born again, he says, you were born not of some physical element, but you were born again out of an imperishable seed, which is the word of God. And he makes it specifically personal. He says, this is the word that was preached to you. The very words that you heard preached by the apostles is the element of your rebirth. Now, as I look at that, I think, well, one connection to that must be that that Peter's saying here that we are connected with the word of God in a very intrinsic way. That there's a sense in which the Christian cannot be divorced from or alienated from, separated from the word of God. That it's undeniable. Inasmuch as that you take a, a, a tree that's come from a seed, you can't separate the seed from the tree. For one thing, the tree will produce the same seed again in the natural world. But that seed and that tree go together. And the tree can't just decide I don't have anything else to do or diminish the importance of the seed from which it was born. So if I'm born of the seed of the word of God, if that's how I became a Christian, and my rebirth takes place through the power of the word of God, then I have no basis from which to, in my Christian life, to denigrate the power of the word of God or separate myself from what God says about his own word uh, in scripture itself. So the question I suppose that we're going to address a little bit is, contains, in some ways, a reference to our own identity as God's people. Does the church, and that's you and I, does the church need anything other than the scriptures to do its work? Does it need anything other than the Bible to arrive at the truth and to accomplish God's work, not only as individuals, but corporately as God's people? Now, when I ask that question, and we're going to try to present some answers to that question, I would ask you that you understand that I am assuming something that we recognize, and that is that the power that's inherent within the Word of God is God's own power Himself. So when I say, does God, does the church need anything to do God's work except the Scriptures, I'm in no way saying that we could accomplish anything just with a book apart from the power of God. We need the power of the Father, we need the power of the Son, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to bring about change in our life and to, and to do God's work. What I would also suggest is that the scriptures teach us that the practical way in which we arrive at and certainly utilize the power that's found in God himself is through exclusively his words in the aspect of doing his work. And that has to do with the sufficiency of scripture. To believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures is to declare a position that in many ways is not very popular today. That there are a lot of folks that in terms of their religious service to God and their religious conviction and practice, don't have much use for the Bible. At least that's portrayed in the fact that not many times do they reference it, not many times do they study it, not many times do they use the basis for their own convictions. And modern religion in many ways has seen fit to embrace what we might think of as a pragmatic approach to doing God's Word. It focuses not so much on what the Bible actually teaches or what individuals on a spiritual level need, but more on the aspect of the felt needs, many times not of God's people, but rather of the unbeliever. And so assemblies are driven, decisions are made, people act in such a way that what's most important is to make the message, of, the message that, they're, that they're teaching appealing to those who would listen. And so the methodology many times of modern religion is to draw people with something other than what God has revealed. And that depicts to me that people, in terms of doing God's work, are not really satisfied. They're not really contented to just take the Bible and do God's work. 
And so what's happened in religion in many ways is that preaching has given way to counseling, entertainment has replaced worship, recreation has taken the place of edification. And the real purpose that's found many times in all of that is not to satisfy a spiritual need, but rather a physical need. Now that itself is a lesson in itself, I suppose, maybe for another time. But the base, I think the, the results that we see in religion today are based upon the very thing that we are talking about in studying this evening. And that is the aspect of a proper understanding, or maybe more particularly a, 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 an improper understanding of the importance of the Word of God. Let me suggest to you that taking a pragmatic approach to what we do as individuals and as a church is wrong for a couple of reasons. It's wrong for one reason, because it begins with the wrong question. The pragmatists ask, what do people want? What will be received? What is appealing? And then they build a strategy around that. And many times in terms of uh, uh, getting that done, there are people that specialize in that. They get calls many, many times uh, here at the church building and even sometimes at my personal residence, individuals that want to help me. Uh, build a strategy to uh, to draw people in so that increase the numbers and the, to uh, produce church growth. And certainly there's nothing wrong with church growth. That's exactly what God wants is for his church to grow. But that methodology is based around the aspect of trying to answer the question in a pragmatic way, what will appeal to people? When actually that's the wrong question all along. Certainly we want the gospel to be appealing, and I think in many ways it is, but the real question is, what does God say in the word of God? What has been revealed in his word of God? Or more to the point, what does the Bible teach us? What is biblical? Another reason why this approach is wrong is because it redefines biblical priorities of the church, God's people. Assemblies are not supposed to be designed around this aspect of what we want to entertain us or, to, to, or that we become the audience of what takes place. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, in words where Luke describes the beginning of the church in the, in the city of Jerusalem, he says that they, being those who, who became Christians by receiving the word and being baptized into Christ, God's people, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and in prayer. Now what Luke's, Luke's telling us there is that there was a central focus to, to the assemblies of God's people. And that was the aspect of the teaching of the word of God, the preaching of God's truth, and the worship of individuals toward God. So that the words that were said and the and what the individual did was directed by the Holy Spirit himself to draw attention to God and not to ourselves. And lastly, what we're really talking about here is that the pragmatic approach denies the sufficiency of the word of God. It assumes that we need something else to get people to respond to the gospel or to truly repent of their sins and to turn back to God. And so we sometimes might very well accommodate that. We're going to see how that's different from what takes place in the New Testament and what the Bible teaches. A fundamental scripture about the scriptures, a fundamental passage that defines for us the power of the word of God and the sufficiency of the word of God is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, that's the, that's the reading of the passage from the New International Version. The passage clearly declares the inspiration of the scriptures. In the text itself, it says here that all scripture is inspired. And you notice in the, new, in the NIV that I read a few moments ago, it uses the term God-breathed because uh, theopanestos means the aspect of God-breathed or that God voiced it. 
And so what the Bible teaches about itself is that the words of God are the words of God, that the words themselves come from God. Now, if that's true, then it necessarily teaches that the Bible is sufficient. If God has spoken the word, then what he's spoken is sufficient for the task for which he's spoken it. And so the Bible is wholly inspired and wholly sufficient, or it's neither. If I deny that the Bible is sufficient to do its work, then I must necessarily assume that the Bible is not inspired because God spoke those words that will accomplish his purposes. But what what does Paul tell us here? He says, one, that the Bible teaches truth. It says here that it's profitable for doctrine. The word doctrine means teaching. It has reference to the aspect of the content of Scripture. That what... Paul's telling us here and telling the Christians of the first century is that the scriptures themselves are the operating manual. That when we go to search for truth and want to know whether or not something is right or wrong, whether or not something should or shouldn't be done, that the the word of God is authoritative in terms of what God would allow or what God would not allow. That it's based upon reality. To see the Bible as a bunch of myths, to see the Bible as that which is contained contains errors or somehow doesn't is have been uh, rewritten by the culture of the day. You see, is to deny what the Bible claims for itself and also to deny the very basis on which the Bible would be sufficient for its task. We cannot please God without knowing what the truth is. The truth will make us free, Jesus says. The Bible also reproves sin. It means the text says that it's profitable for reproof. The Hebrew writer describes God's word as a two-edged sword that cuts deep, that it has the ability to open a person up Hebrew chapter 4 and verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give account. The term, interestingly enough, the term for naked here in this, in this last part of the page, page where it says all things are naked and open to him is a term that was used in the literal Greek to describe the position of a criminal as he would uh, being led to execution that many times in the process of that execution he would not be allowed to drop his head a dagger would be placed under his throat and he had to hold his head up as he was taken uh, to his own execution and the word then came to mean by connotation the aspect of something that is forcibly exposed that it cannot hide and so everything is exposed by the word of God what does that what does that mean in terms of the sufficiency of the word of God? That when it comes to the aspect of right and wrong, determining something, the morality of something, that God, God's word exposes it. When it comes to the aspect of that morality, even as it exists within the innermost parts of my heart, to the, to, to the bone and the marrow, to the soul and the spirit, and what the writer there, writer there is describing is that that which you see is all the way inside and not exposed to human sight is exposed to the word of God and more importantly, the word of God exposes it himself. So that what God says tells us about tells us things about our things that we would never discover on our own or never be able to hold ourselves accountable for. Exposes us for who we are and defines our actions for right or wrong. It discerns the thought and the intentions of the heart. He also says here that the word of God, the scripture, corrects behavior. And again, the original word for correction here has a powerful connotation. It means to straighten up or to lift up. It's the aspect here that something is crooked or something has fallen down and needs correction. And therefore, Scripture is profitable for bringing us back into the right path, for restoring us to a position where we are in a proper spiritual posture before God. 
It doesn't leave us where sin would leave us. It doesn't even leave us where our recognition of the guilt of sin and forgiveness would lead us, leave us. But rather it corrects us to the point of putting us back on the right path of doing those things that are right. And that's what the aspect here of correction means. But then he also says here that it trains us in righteousness. It defines those things that are right. And then it trains us in those things that are right by molding our conscience toward them and by enlightening us on the profitability of doing things that are right. I believe this last phrase, that the word of God is sufficient to the task because it trains us in righteousness, connects us with the aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul said that there, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, Paul's talking about this aspect of following God by the direction of the Holy Spirit, and he lists these qualities that belong to God that are the fruit of the Spirit that define not only God himself, but define what God is able to produce and does produce in the heart and the human heart. So how does God bring that about? How is it that the fruit bear, the Spirit bears fruit in our lives? Well, I think certainly the, the obvious answer to that, or a powerful answer that we need to recognize about that, is it does it through what God has said. The Spirit brought this world into being by speaking the words of God. The creative process was made applicable to the world that we live in because God spoke words. So if God would create in me a new heart, if it would create a new person, I have a person that's been deviant and done, been lived rebellious before him, if it would replace hate with love, if God would replace, you see, stinginess with generosity and the aspect of unsettledness, with peace and the fruits of the Spirit be born in a person's life, he would do that through the words that he speaks. And that's what Paul's saying. That the Word of God trains us in those things that are right. and Thereby, we walk in the Spirit. Now, what does it take to bring a person to Christ? Let me affirm this answer. It takes Scripture plus nothing. Now again, that does not erase the importance of understanding that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, converts every sinner and trains every person in righteousness and corrects every evil in the Christian's life. But when we come right down to it, as far as what will what the person that, that would take the that would convert the sinner should use, or what he should be sufficiently confident in to bring about the conversion of those who are not Christians, and I believe this is the correct answer. It is scripture plus nothing. There is no philosophy book. There is no teaching of men. There is no creed. There is no church doctrine. There is no, you see, ecumenical commencement that you and I need to engage in to bring a person to Christ. Jesus gave testimony to the sufficiency of scriptures in Luke chapter 16. You remember that familiar passage? And I think there are several implications from the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. One such lesson, I believe, is that Jesus tells us that when the rich man found out where he was and discovered that he was on the other side of life and that, there, that he was in great torment, that he sent a request to Abraham to send someone back to his brothers. And he said there, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If something just unusual happens, if you could just startle them and get them awake, if, they, if you could perform a miracle and send somebody back from the dead, they would repent. 
Abraham's answer affirms the sufficiency of Scripture and evangelism for all time because he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded of one rise from the dead. What was Abraham saying? They already got what they need. The word of God is sufficient to bring a person to repentance and to bring a person to God. Now what we recognize then in terms of what the rest of the New Testament teaches is true discipleship involves this aspect of a full contentment and trust in the, in the aspect of the sufficiency of God's word alone. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, It is spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And in the context of that story, there are many, you see, who did not grasp what Jesus was saying. They said, that's too hard of a saying. He said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to be my disciple. You must totally believe what I say. He rebuked them because they followed him on the other side of the sea to be, so that their bellies could be filled with the bread he provided in a miraculous manner. And when it got down to the end of, the, of, of, of their time together, it says in verse 66 that from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, I think about that and I think about what Peter didn't say. It's powerful what he did say. But he didn't say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You miraculously feed us. To whom shall we go? You're the person that can walk on the water. To whom shall we go? You can raise the dead. Now, all of those things would be true about Jesus. But what Peter saw and understood about the question in the context of that event is that the power that Jesus was espousing to give the men was through the words that he was saying. You have the words of eternal life. You are speaking what God has spoken. And so the aspect here is that Peter was willing to follow Jesus without any physical promise of something additional other than the fact that Peter was hearing words from God. We also recognize that discipleship demands complete trust in God's word because that is the consistent apostolic position of the scriptures. One thing is certainly true. If I open the Bible and I look at how the, old, how the people of the first century, and the apostles particularly, how they utilized the scriptures that had already been revealed for God, it's going to paint for me a clearer picture of how I have to respect and react to the scriptures that God has given through them. The apostles were the ones who the, the, the Holy Spirit guided into all truth so that they could make that truth known to, to us. But they weren't the first ones who spoke from God. The prophets who'd come before them had also spoken the words of God. And the Old Testament scriptures were certainly the written word of those prophets who'd spoken. So how did the apostles reflect upon Old Testament scripture? And how did they reflect upon the word the Holy Spirit was even giving them in terms of the word of God? One thing is certain, the apostles always called people to the sufficiency of the word of God. They completely displayed complete confidence in what God had said before. Not doubting its authenticity, saying that, well, it was written a long time ago, or that there's something else to be added to it. The only time they added to, or they talked about adding to what had been written in the Old Testament, was when the Holy Spirit was speaking through them, and they claimed to be the ambassadors of God to speak further words of God. But what they certainly recognized is that the scriptures of God was the avenue through which God's work would be done. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, If you instruct brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Now it suggests to you that they're both 
Old Testament and New Testament scriptures are contained in that passage. He talks about this aspect of things that he would be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and doctrine that he had already received, if he instructed the brethren on things that Paul was teaching him right then. And so what Paul was telling Timothy, you have to respect scripture for what it is, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. It's God speaking, it's not me. And you're a good minister of Jesus if you do these things. A note from the standpoint of, I think, this aspect of the use of, the, of scriptures uh, by the apostles and the aspect of what they spoke being the source, the sufficient source of getting the work done uh, is found in Acts chapter 24. And you remember Acts chapter 24, after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, that they sent for Paul and they heard him concerning the faith in Jesus Christ. Paul had the opportunity to speak before Felix. It says, now as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have convenient time, I will call for you. Now what Paul was preaching was scripture. He was talking to them about what God had revealed about their own personal, his own personal responsibility. So here he is standing before this government official, a very monumental occasion for him to have the opportunity to speak before this official, and maybe even in some ways to recognize that this man could put him to death or set him free. And he reasons out of scripture, and when the fellow balks at it, when he becomes afraid of what's being said, it's, he says, go away and I'll call you another time. But Paul did not stop at the door and say, well, wait a minute, let me rephrase that. He did not attempt in any way to comfort or console the one who was afraid of what was being said. He didn't turn the, turn the message around. It goes on to tell us that Felix sought to release Paul, that he wanted to let him go if he would give him what he wanted. And yet, even in that context, Paul did not take a pragmatic approach. He could have reasoned within himself, well, you know, if I die here, that's going to mess things up. And if Felix lets me go, if I can appeal to him that I can preach to a lot more people, so I'll just tell him something different so he'll let me go. Make sense? It would today. Paul didn't do that. Why? Because God had spoken, because God had revealed, because there was objective truth that this person needed to know. That if Felix didn't understand about self-control and righteousness and the judgment to come, he could never be saved. He needed to know what God said. So Paul was more willing to leave them miserable and terrifying, knowing the truth rather than comfortable and ignorant of what God has said. And we need to be satisfied only with that as well. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, the apostle Peter says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. In James chapter 1 and verse 21, James says, Therefore let us lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. The scriptures are sufficient for that task. There's also in this aspect the need for discernment. And I believe that a lot of people have lost confidence in the sufficiency of scripture to do God's work because they failed to learn the truth and apply it to their problems. They failed to see the power of the truth in their lives be brought out and have real fruit born to them. Paul tells us that the word of God is a vital part of the Christian spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6. You remember that passage where he says you put on the whole armor of God? In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 he says, take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. That makes a good study to identify all of these different elements of the armor of the Roman soldier. And, and you get down to this one where you talk about the sword. I woke, what part of the armor would be, uh, you see, less apparent of a Roman soldier than the sword hanging from his, from his hip? If he pulled that sword out, you knew he meant business. 
certainly that would define him in terms of the context of his job by the very fact that he wore a sword. But it's interesting to note as well that in this in describing what is the only offensive weapon that he's given, that what's described here is not this aspect of a very large sword, but rather it's a, the word described what we might more think of as a dagger or a knife. There are different kinds of swords. And the word here does not describe the large broadsword, but rather the small sword that would be, would be sheathed near the side that he could pull out a moment's notice that was sharpened on both sides for the purpose of inserting it with great precision. You didn't flail this thing around. If you drew it, you knew exactly where you were going to put it, and you poked a person with it so that it could do its work. The idea here, I think, in terms of this particular passage, is that God expects us to use his word precisely and with great precision to do God's work. In fact, the word word here that's used when it talks about the word of God is in this verse is singular. It means a single specific statement of God. You know, we talk about word and use it in a, as it reflects, reflects all of God's word. Uh, this particular application of the original language means a word. So what is the sword of the spirit in terms of utilization? It's even a single word from God's revelation. Words that have meaning. Words that ought to be respected. Words like obedience and submission and baptism and redemption and forgiveness. All of those words somehow that have been misdefined or simply ignored in many religious circles are the very element for which God expects us to get his work done. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37 familiar with this particular passage when Peter preached the gospel for the first time he told them about Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies he told them that Jesus had resurrected from the dead that he, was no, he wasn't like David over here in the grave somewhere that he had risen from the grave on the third day and that God had exalted him to the right hand of God and that he was Lord in Christ and said when they heard this word they were pricked in their hearts verse 37 the King James uses the word pricked there and sometimes we might read that passage, particularly out of that version, and think that what he's talking about here is like a pinprick or a mosquito bite. But the original word is significant. Vine tells us that the word literally means to strike a violent blow or to stun someone. And so the American Standard and other versions use the term cut to the heart, which gives it a little more of its meaning. But what's Luke telling us there was taking place when Peter was preaching the words of God, when he was telling them about what Joel 2 really meant, and, and getting them to understand what it meant that they were men hearing them speak in their own tongues, and that Jesus had risen from the dead. That He's saying there that the word of God was knocking those people over. Because that's exactly what it was supposed to do. They were to go reeling from the stunning punch of God's word to the point they would cry out, Men and brethren, what can we do? How, what can, how can we respond to this? We crucified our own Savior. There was no yawning through this. There wasn't any falling asleep. He was preaching the words of God. Jeremiah chapter 23 and 29. The prophet asked this question from God. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord? And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? What is the word of God? Jeremiah would rhetorically ask... God's people, the Israelites, do not you see that the words of God are like a fire? 
They burn stuff up. It's like a hammer that breaks in pieces the rock. This is not something you see you can just pass over. It's not something that is innocuous or insignificant that God would speak. The power of God's Word, the power of the words that God spoke both in the Old Testament and the New Testament was for the purpose of moving people to respond. And so Peter didn't undertake to win them over to Christ to engineer from them a positive response so they would be a more appealing to the society that they lived in so that they might accept Jesus as their Savior in some innocuous way. He was driving them to obedience in the contrition of their sins to recognize that without Jesus Christ and without, without accepting through faith and obedience what God had done, they couldn't in any way survive the wrath of God. It was in essence to stun them into the obedience that would be reflective in their repentance and their baptism. Now, I, I get us to recognize all of that to understand that this is the very same word. These are the very same words of God that the first century received by the Holy Spirit. And the power of the New Testament to do it then is the power of God to do it today. So the sufficiency of the Scripture can only be evident when we seek to communicate all that God has revealed. We can't trivially pick and choose what we will say out of the Scriptures that we like or that we do not like. We can't avoid doctrine because it appears to be confrontational or unappealing to those who are unconverted. We do them no favors by hiding the truth or dissuading them from believing some parts of the truth. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus told His apostles, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How will I do that? He says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The word always used twice in that commission. One to reflect upon the responsibility of the disciple to teach everything that God would reveal through the Holy Spirit. The other always is the promise of God that if that happens, I'll never leave you and never abandon you. So that the very presence of God is predicated upon an individual recognizing the sufficiency of the Word of God in his life and in everybody's life. I can't denigrate it to something that doesn't matter. I can't replace it with the philosophies of men. If I do, I risk God leaving me and abandoning me in the purpose he's given me to do. As a follow-up and application to Paul's declaration on the inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wrote to the young Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. These are some of the last words that are recorded in Scripture of the Apostle Paul. He tells the young evangelist, I charge you therefore before God. That word charge means I put you under order. It's a military term meaning this is not a suggestion, this is a command. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, or convince and rebuke and exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. He goes on to say, But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of evangelists and fulfill your ministry. Now Paul's not, I believe in these words, charging or commanding Timothy to do something. It sort of comes out of the sky out of nowhere. 
that this command is based upon and this charge is based upon what Timothy had already known and come to know and that Paul certainly had commended to him in what he said earlier. What he talked about the profitability and the sufficiency of the Word of God, the Scriptures that you know, knowing where you've learned them and that you've understood these things in the time that you were youth, that God has spoken. If God has given His Word and His Word is sufficient, then the Apostle can say to Timothy, take it and do the job. And that's what he said. He said, take it and do the job. You can convince and rebuke and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. You can overcome the tendency of men to believe only what they want to believe. And you can be watchful. And you can endure afflictions and do the work of a ministry. Why? Because the Word of God is sufficient for the task. Timothy could not accomplish that on his own. It wasn't Paul was relying upon Timothy's good looks or Timothy's ability to speak or his pervasive powers. He was saying, I want you to preach the Word. And that'll be enough. You preach the word, and that'll be worth enough. Now, my contention this evening as we close is that these words declare our mandate for Jesus. If we are God's people, we claim to follow Jesus Christ. If we would put our trust and confidence that through us God would do his work, then this is how he will do it. That our mandate is to strive to preach the word of God plus nothing. To not interject our feelings or our thoughts or the consensus of our thinking. Not any creed book from men or any declaration from some council that we have that we have arrived at, but rather to preach simply what God has revealed, and we have to be content with that. But you see, that content, that contentment, that satisfaction, is not in something that is less; it's in something the power of which has created the very world that we live in and converted every soul that's ever been created, been converted, and the power of the Holy Spirit that's been able to take men like Saul of Tarsus who would murder Christians and turn them into individuals who would be lights and ambassadors for God in the dark world. And you know those kind of people. I don't know that you know any apostles. Maybe you do. But you know people that have been converted, don't you? (laughs) That have been changed, that are different than they were before. Not just different on the outside, different on the inside in every way. They're not the same person they were before. They have been recreated spiritually in the image of one who died for them. How'd that take place? How'd that happen? Through the Word of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the Word of God. So our mandate is to preach the Word of God because it is in every way sufficient for the task. In that goal, in the pursuit of that goal, as we close our lesson, I call upon you to think about your own soul and your relationship to God. On what basis would you judge What criteria would you use to assess whether or not you are right before God? Would it be safe to assume that you could ask your preacher? Or that you could ask the group of folks that you live with? That you could ask your family? That there's some consensus of human opinion that could bring you to a confidence that you're right with God and you're doing those things that are right with God? Could you ask your own family? Could you even ask your own conscience that you're doing what God has given you to do? Or in the asking and the receiving of that question, do you risk receiving the wrong answer? Paul had asked his own conscience when he was Saul of Tarsus. He was doing what was right. He'd gotten the wrong answer. The thing that straightened him up on all of that were the very words of God. When he came to recognize what God had revealed and the full understanding of what God had spoken Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was changed. 
So I ask you, are you a Christian? Are you doing what God has given you? Do you have done everything that God has given you to do to be right with Him? So in that pursuit of the goal, we ask you to obey not the words of a church, not the words of a council, not the words of men. But if you would seek to obey God, obey the words of Scripture. Not just some of them. But strive to obey everything that God has given you to do and to understand everything that God has revealed on how to be a Christian and how to be forgiven. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized will be saved. Is that enough? Those words, is that enough? To convince you that that's what you need to do if you're not a Christian? Jesus said it. There it is. In Mark 16, 16, and Acts 2, 38, the people on that very day were given the words of Peter that they needed to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. There it is again. How a person becomes a Christian in Scripture itself. That's enough. I don't need it for all of us to agree on that. I don't need the counsel of men to say, yes, that's what I think we ought to do. Or nor do I need to look at what men have done in the past to arrive at whether or not that's what I need to do. If what's what the Scripture says, then that ought to be enough. Amen. Ought to be enough. Will you do it? Let us help you while we stand and while we sing.